My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am here with Dr. Thomas Madsen, who has had a fascinating career uh, working on a whole variety of snakes in some really amazing places. And so we're going to take a little bit of a tour of the world today, uh, talking about some different species. Um, And in particular, I'm excited to talk to him about the species that actually makes it up into the Arctic. So uh, many of you may may not know, but there is a species uh, of snake that um, in Europe ends up making it up into the Arctic Circle. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the ecology of that species uh, generally. And we're also going to talk about uh, one of the longest term snake studies ever to happen on the planet uh, that Thomas has been running with this species. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Thomas. It's good to see you. Good to see you again, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like to start uh, my episodes by giving everybody a little bit of a feel for how the guests got to where they are today. And I say this in many episodes, but you know, a lot of people in the world would look at the things that interest you and me, and they would actually think we're quite eccentric, despite for us thinking that, you know, these are quite normal and interesting things. And so I, I like to hear that that story. So how how did you first get into snakes? Is this something that happened when you were really young or something that kind of came about later in life? I have it in my genes. Uh, I don't remember it even, but my mom told me in Sweden, we have three different species of toads. And I was three years old or perhaps four years old. And we have a toad called the common toad. And I collected those and dug holes in the ground where I wanted to keep them. And uh, then, of course, they just climbed out and they were gone the next day and I was crying. And uh, so, but that I don't recall. Uh, So I must, you know, have these weird uh, things with these animals. And when I was a bit older, I was probably six years old, I I found a slow worm, which is like a glass snake in in, uh, glass lizard in the U.S. And kept that for a while. But my mother didn't allow me to keep them because it looked, keep it because it looked too much like a snake so I had to let it go again and then then uh, you know I then thought oh I wanted to keep snakes and I read a lot about snakes and I must have been I was eight years old I think then I caught my first grass snake which is like your Nerodias in the US and I knew I couldn't keep it so but I was lucky it was in May so we have Mother's Day so I gave it as a present to her. It was quite a large female <laughs> grass snake. And uh, of course, she couldn't say no. And, and then I said, oh, yeah, I can, make, I can make a cage for it. And 
Of course, I couldn't because the grass snake was mostly out in the flat or whatever. But but uh, that's how it started. And uh, it was like, you know, a nuclear explosion because once I got one snake, I got two, and then I got four, and then I got eight, and then I got 16, and then I got 32, and then I got 64 snakes in my room. <laughs> well, it sounds like your mother was uh, reluctantly supportive of your, uh, your, she your was growing amazing. hobby. But she went through her life with me when I still lived home until I left high school. I don't think any other mother would have uh, taken, like having to go to the neighbor's loo because I left my crock in the bathroom. <laughs> and and so you grew up in Sweden, is that right? What part of nope. the, the country did you did you grow up in? I smell southern part. I grew up in, in central, well, I, until I was nine, I, no, six or seven, sorry. I lived in central Sweden, about 100 k's west of Stockholm, but then we moved down to the extreme south, Malmö, which is just across from Copenhagen. So it's really far, far south in Sweden. Uh, okay. And so, and so you grew uh, up. Yeah. And in the area, well, I was really, I didn't like living there because when we lived in the, the first town called Vesteros, we, the house we stayed in, we never stayed in our own houses. We only were always rented flats, but the house, Face the forest. So you could go in the forest and you could have walked up to northern Sweden in just forest. But when we came to Malmö, it was a new built area and southern part of Sweden is just agricultural land. So there were just plowed meadows around them, the, the house we lived in. And I remember asking my mom, I asked her, what do kids do here? Because, you know, there was no forest. There was nothing to, to see. You know, it was awful. I, I hated it. Yeah. <laughs> no snakes and toads to bury. Well, no, no. Um, I got a bit older, so I could use my bike, and and then I bike. You had to bike about twenty, thirty k's from that town. Then you got into small patches of forest where there were lots of amphibians and snakes. Yeah. So you were so you were really into uh, reptiles and amphibians as a child. And then, so, you know, as you got a little bit older and say we're, you know, kind of a university age, uh, did you, when did you figure out, oh, this is something that I could maybe do for a career? Is that something you went to university focused on or is it something you had to find when you were there? No, completely different because when I finished high school, that was during the Vietnam War and, and I was heavily involved in the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations. And I was, yeah, so I was very politically active and I hated high school. So when I finished high school, I said, I will never study again. You know, it's awful. And, uh, but I still had traveled a lot before then and uh, been to Africa. When I went to high school, I worked in summer and got money. So uh, I wanted to travel and, but I also realized I, I don't want to study. So I was employed as uh, the main keeper of reptiles of the largest reptile collection we had then in Sweden, in Kolmodern Zoological Garden. And uh, then that was rebuilt completely. And I thought, so there was an old bloke there who was a carpenter and he was in charge of the building and I became his apprentice. And then there was a bricklayer who did lots of brickwork and concrete work, and I became an apprentice of that. So when I finished there, I was a fully qualified carpenter and a brickie. And then I started, so I did lots of work on that and 
traveled to Africa. And uh, in 1973, I was at a friend of mine uh, who worked in Africa for a Swedish company, and he we caught snakes too. He was a keen snake catcher. We had he had a big snake area in Tanzania, and uh, they were building one of the largest. Um, hydroelectric stations, well, the first one ever in, in Tanzania, it was a Swedish company. And there was an blo- Italian bloke who was, was in charge of making the concrete foundation, you know, you make it out of wood with reinforcement iron. And I said, yeah, I have a, I can do that. I've been working on that. No, he said, you've got the job. Oh, great. I thought, oh, I can stay in Africa now. But then I had applied to enter university in Sweden to be in Sweden, then you had to study chemistry before you could study biology. But because of my, my high school marks were pathetic, I knew I, they are not good enough to enter. But for some reason, when I came back, so I told this Italian bloke, I, I just go back to Sweden and see if I got, you know, can start uni, other, but I probably won't. So I'll be back in a few weeks. But I, I could go. And from then on, that's where I, what I did. Yeah. So I started, studied chemistry and then biology. Ah, okay. And so then how did you end up making your way? Uh, you currently live in Australia. And so how did you make your way from Europe to Australia? Well, in fact, I was in Australia the first time, 1974. And uh, uh, and I went up to Cape York with two of my mates. And we were up there to collect taipans because a friend of mine, I was then also... I eventually became a biochemist, but that was a few years later. But one of my best friends made his PhD on Taipan venom. And uh, Taipan venom we got from a bloke called Ross, uh, Ross Tanner in, in, in Cooktown. So we went to him and it was extremely expensive to get, um, the venom was very expensive and Taipans were hard to find. But uh, Tanner told me, no, sorry, not Ross Tanner, Charlie Tanner. And he told me, oh, you go about 200 k's north of here, which is quite far north in Cape York. There are mobs of Taipans there. And I had got a permit from Australia to export four Taipans to Sweden, which I would then milk and pay for my trip to Australia. And so I caught, we caught a mob of Taipans. It was great fun. So I had these four Taipans and... Uh, we took the bus down to Sydney again. And when I came to Sydney, I still don't remember how it really was. But for some odd reason, I saw a sign that they wanted a crop catcher in Arnhem Land uh, for University of Sydney. To, they started a program, project on used on saltics, just doing crocodilosporosis. And so I applied. And, and they said, so they asked me what they Oh, yeah, I caught uh, in Senegal. I caught uh, crocodiles in Senegal years ago. Oh, oh, wow, you get the job. So then I went, I got to do with the Taipans. So I went to Harold Cogger, who, is, who was then the boss of reptiles in, uh, and he was the bloke who, who gave me the permit to export them. And I told Harold, can you keep these Taipans for me? Because I'm going up catching crocs for a few months. Oh, sure, he said. So yeah, we, we fixed the cage and we put, released the four Taipans in his office. And I said, I, I, I will look after them for you until you come back. And uh, so I went up and caught crocodiles in Arnhem Land. It was great. And then I got, in those days, you didn't have anything. So I got the telex your t- from Harold. Your typons have been confiscated. 
And he was devastated. Even I, looked, I thought, oh, oh, sorry, you shouldn't say like that. But I thought, oh, shit. And, but I didn't, it didn't matter that much. And it turned out that Harold didn't know, and of course I didn't know either, that it was illegal. We didn't have a permit to take the Taipans from Queensland, where we caught them, into New South Wales. Ah. And that's why they were confiscated. And those Taipans, because they were all above two meters, were worth a fortune. And I know who tipped them off because I know who got the Taipans. I won't tell you who it was. <laughs> Probably somebody I know, it sounds like. Yeah. But, but, um... but, uh, but it, it didn't matter. I had a ball catching crocodiles. So that's the first time I went to Australia. And, but then I was back in Sweden. And then I spent lots of times in East Africa, Lake Tanganyika, three years and whatever. And, uh, but, uh, then when I finished my PhD, I went to a snake conference in US. Yeah, it was on Vancouver Island. Yeah, it was 1986. And there I met Rick Shine. And uh, I think it was there. Yeah, anyhow, we met there and I gave a talk of my preliminary data for Adams, what I found, which nobody had been. So I've been collecting data, how male mating success, how many males a female mate with and all of that, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Rick got very impressed by that, but that was it. And then, uh, so I got my PhD in 1987, but, uh, and I applied for a research grant in Sweden based on my other research. And uh, they said, oh, no, no, this is just ridiculous. You, what you've been telling us here, it doesn't fit with what we know about evolution. So it was rejected. And anyhow, then Rick had got some money. So in, 89, in October 89, he employed me as a postdoc to start working on the water pythons. And that's what I've been doing with the water pythons since then. Ah, okay, great. And you're currently, uh, you're a, a professor at a university there in Sydney area, is that right? No, I'm, I'm a professor now, but now I'm an old fox, so I'm an honorary professor at Deakin here. We I was a long time at Sydney Uni, and then I was headhunted down to Wollongong Uni. And we, my wife, Beuge, and I, we spent quite 10 years there. But then Bea got headhunted down here to Deakin, and we moved to Deakin. And so, in fact, most of our research, the last, the important research, research we do at the moment is cancer research that we've been doing since, oh, it's 10 years now. So we... The real research that I look upon the others and the pythons, it's great to continue, but it's my hobby now. It's uh, what we work on is cancer. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, let's let's uh, shift back to Sweden, and I I want to start off by talking a little bit just about adders uh, in a real general sense, you know, natural history and kind of general ecology. But then I want to focus in and talk about. Uh, some of the long-term research you've been doing. So, uh, so first of all, adders, the, the common adder, I guess you would call it, it would be the common name, Vipera baris, is, that is one of the most widely distributed uh, venomous snakes in Europe. Is that, would that be an accurate statement? It's the mo highly most distributed. It has the largest distribution of any reptile or certainly any snake in the world. They occur from Scotland to the island of Sakhalin in, in uh, east of Siberia. 
it's so oh, all the okay. way from Scotland to so it's a huge distribution. And as you said, uh, where and in Sweden they go even up well north of the Arctic Circle. I've been up there catching them many years, and and they they're up so about even uh, it's two hundred k's north of the Arctic Circle. They are others up mm. there, and uh, there they grow huge. They are monsters. They are really big. So it's it's ah, a huge that's... distribution, and they are of course they are venomous, but. Uh, but they are not dead. Very rarely a person will die. It occurs, but it's very, very rare. But certainly a bite, I've been bitten, is nothing to play around with. It, it's, you have to go to hospital because it's, you get sick. You get sick. Mm-hmm. And, well, so let's stick with that, with the venom. And uh, so how, you know, so it's relatively mild bite. You said not a lot of people um, would die, but um, can make you quite sick. What do we know about the venom and the components of it and how it, uh, you know, how it would say affect a human, but, you know, how it's designed for their, their primary prey and, and what is their primary prey? Well, it's a bit like, you know, most of the viperids and you include now the crocodiles like your rattlesnakes. It's a, well, some rattlesnakes, of course, like uh, Mojave rattlesnake, they have a completely different venom. But most of them have, like an adder, it's a venom that affects, it's hemotoxic and cytotoxic, and it kills by coagulating blood and causing internal bleeding and, and, and cell damage to cell tissue quite severely. You, a bad bite of an adder can cause severe necrosis, similar to what you get from a a severe bite from the rattlesnake. So the venom is very similar. And, but their main prey depends on where they, where you are. So up north, the main prey up there are frogs. And it might, mm-hmm. but otherwise the main prey, you could say the main prey for adult or subadult and other adders are rodents and not mice, but voles, because, uh, at least where I've been studying them, they are not able to catch mice. They, but the voles, <laughs> they make sort of tunnels. And the adder, and the interesting thing is that the adder will follow, you, you just get the scent of the vole and follow the tunnel down where the vole is. And what they do, at least at my main study site, that they, eat, they eat the babies. And of course, the female vole just have to leave because uh, she can't defend them, and uh, they just gobble them down, and, and then uh, they come out again and bask. Of course, they sometimes take it, uh, because the voles don't start breeding until midsummer or late in June, July. But, so they take occasional big ones, but, but it's, it's the main prey for them. Is, but then on the other hand, as I said, it, and when they are small, on one of my study sites, the main prey is on newts that come up, on land, you know, after being in water, so then juveniles feed on that. And on my main study site, the big one, where also oh, not the big one, where, where I have my other long-term study. In fact, it's grasshoppers the first when they are really small, and then they swap to. Uh, so they will. There are hardly any frogs there. Otherwise, in other areas, they will also feed on newly metamorphosed frogs. That's the main prey for for juvenile adults. And then when they grow up. They switch prey, which is common. Many U.S. snakes do exactly the same. They feed on one prey, a small, they grow bigger, and they feed on something else. Do you know, talking about the venom relative to the diet, do you know if, 
or do we at, in science in general know if there's much variation in the the venom uh, components uh, based on, say, you know, populations that are mainly eating like ectotherms like frogs versus others that are mainly eating voles or even across the life of one where it has a, a different diet when it's young and as it gets older. Do we know much about variation in venom? No, we don't. And I've been working on that. I worked on, on adovenoms or, and puff adovenoms as a biochemist, but they're very hard. In those days, it was very hard. Now it's easy to do it, but in those days, it was hard. But there is a subspecies, they call it, of adder that lives on the Balkans. And it has a, a new, highly neurotoxic venom. So it's a very different venom from my adders. And mm. nobody has really studied their ecology, but I assume they feed on, on similar stuff uh, as other adders. And if you think of Mojave rattlesnakes, they feed on virtually, they have a completely different venom from Aatrox, for instance, but they both feed on, on mammals. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So That's interesting. The, but, but the thing is, of course, I know one of my mates, Wolfgang Wilster, we have published several papers together. He works a lot on difference in venoms, and he found in some Asian snakes, depending on their prey, what they fed on, they the, the diff, uh, snake venom contains a heck of a lot of different proteins. And the proportion of those changed depending on what prey they were feeding on. Yeah, interesting. Huh. So the species yeah. in the Balklands you're talking about, that is the, that's Ursini, is that right? Or do I... No, no, Viperaberus, Viperaberus bosniensis. Bosniensis. So it's a subspecies. Okay. Yeah, and I don't agree. You know, subspecies to me, I'm, I I hate taxonomy. So to me, it's a it's an adder with really different venom, and it lives in Balkans, the highlands in Balkans. Lights out! Time to sparkle, shimmer, and glow wild. Starting November fourth, the Little Rock Zoo transforms into a larger than light experience. Explore the tranquil jungle and discover enchanted realms glowing with mystical flora and fauna and prehistoric surprises. Spark your imagination after dark with wonders that illuminate memories. See the Little Rock Zoo in a new light at Glow Wild. Tickets on sale at LittleRockZoo.com. Yeah, and so these are also, I've never, I've seen them in captivity. I've never seen one in the wild. And, uh, but they're quite, they're, I think they're quite beautiful snakes. Uh, many of them are, are you know, ha have quite a pattern to them. Um, and, but there's also a lot of color variation. You see some that almost look melanistic. Maybe they are, but they're almost completely black. And others that are kind of gray with a black pattern. And then some almost look to have slightly more, say, brown color in them. Uh, could you just kind of describe how the you know, how, how the variation in, in, you know, kind of the color morphs and how that, you know, plays out across their range. Well, first of all, the adder is one of the few snakes that it is completely sexual, dichromatic. So males and females have completely different color if they are not melanistic. And that's what I've been working on the last 20 years. But it doesn't matter. So we take the normal color. So when they come out from hibernate, males come out about a month before the female. So they come in here down in South, they come in late February, March. And then they are 
They, many people think they are females then because they look sort of brownish, but they are not. And uh, so then after a month, uh, because they are sterile virtually when they come out, the testes must grow and the sperm must mature. Then they shed their skin and they are they become extremely beautiful. Many of you know, my populations are, the ground color is nearly white and the zigzag band is black. And some are light blue with a black zigzag band. Females, they come out much later, but they are the brown ones you talk about. They are sort of brownish ah. and with a brown zigzag band. And, and uh, so, you, as you know, there are not many snakes where you have that. We have a, a viper in Southern Europe, uh, Vipra amoditis, which is a bit similar. And of course you have in what I've been studying in Africa, boomschlangs on the savannah, the males are green and the females are brown. It's really an interesting thing. And then if you look at boomschlangs in the forest, they are both black with yellow dots. Ah, okay. Interesting. You know, uh, yeah. this is no, nowhere near as uh, significant as the species you're talking about. But uh, when I worked on uh, Great Basin rattlesnakes out in the Rocky Mountains, I got to the point where I could really easily uh, distinguish a male from a female and how they looked, but it was very subtle, um, but it was distinct, mm. but nothing like you're talking about. It's not yeah. like one was completely one color, but they look very different. Even when they're different. newly born, you, you, can check, you, you can sex a newly born adder by its color. So a ba uh, newly yeah. born See, we, baby adder, male adder, it, it's grayish with a brown zigzag band. A, a female is light brown with a brown zigzag band. So you don't, it's a piece of cake to, to tell the sex of them. Yeah. Yeah. And you definitely could not do that with the Great Basin rattlesnakes. It, it was after no, they reached maybe I don't like know. five I don't or six. Know many snakes <laughs> do that. Yeah. Um, interesting. So I remember talking to uh, Luca Luiselli, who I'm assuming you know, a uh, number oh, yeah. of years ago. And he, he talked about some of the color differences and he thought there was some. Uh, significance to maybe the proportion of uh, melanistic snakes versus others. I'm just curious, you know, if, if, you know, what you could add to that concept, you know, kind of the proportion of black snakes to non-black snakes. And do we know if there's any significance to that? Well, I just have a paper published in current biology based on a 37-year-old stud long study on my island, where the proportion of melanistic snakes over those 37 years have gone from 5% to 80% between years. And mm. I did this study, the data, and I did it with my friend, John Endler, who perhaps you know, he's written the book Natural Selection in 1992. He's up there with Darwin. And I had, I started thinking, what the heck is causing this variation? You know, that it's enormously different. So, and I mean the proportions. And then John sat down and he started looking at the frequency over time. And he found, he found a correlation there, it's a relationship. And it turned out that what is going on, to make a long story short, it's what it's called frequency-dependent selection. So the main predator 
on the island are crows, just as on my main study site in Smigehuk. Crows hunt by sight, not by smell. And so to make it the negative frequency dependent selection, it sounds like a complicated word, but it's very simple to explain. If one morph is common, then it has a greater risk of being killed than the other one, because there are more of them. So that is the reason. So there's no nothing behind it at all. I was thinking, oh, you know, people have been saying it's something to do with temperature or no, nothing, because a friend of mine did the radio telemetry of black and normal adults. There are no there are difference in temperature at all. It's just the same. So I knew it wasn't uh -huh. there. But I saw these changes and I thought there must be, it has to do with predation, but what's causing it? And that John was a big help there because his knowledge and it also he made some mathematical stuff that I don't simply don't understand. But to make it simple, so when the black morph is common, they're eaten more by crows. They reduce in number. Then the other morph becomes more common and then bang, they are reduced. So it's like, you know, going like this, boom, boom, boom. And then, so the less common they are, the, of course, the less risk they have of being taken. And yeah, I can, crows I can even imagine the, the, the predator must get like a sight image in its head too for a certain color morph. Like if you're out, exactly. say, in a, in a complex environment looking for a particular type of snake, you would probably find more than somebody else because you have this image in your head of what the snake should look like. And yeah. crows, as you know, are very, you know, intelligent animals. And I'm assuming they get like a sight picture for a particular morph and feed on them. And yeah, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. So I don't think it's uh, that. Oh. I don't think it's that, Chris. I, I think they are smart. They are super smart. I think they know both morphs. They, they know that both are edible. It's just that when yeah. one is common, it gets just eaten eat more. more than the other one. Yeah. It's, it's just, more. yeah. Yeah. It's frequency, as it's, you mentioned. So, it's frequency it, dependent yeah. selection. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's, uh, so um, I'm proud. It, it, I, I've sent this paper to you. It's one of my major papers I ever published. Yeah. Well, congratulations. So uh, well, you mentioned re reproduction. Did you, I think you said that they, uh, they breed. Did you say in the late summer, fall? Is that what you said earlier? No, the mating season is basically 14 days in, in southern Sweden where I work with them about the first two weeks in May normally. And then, oh, okay. uh, That's then I, the Yeah, and then after oh, I was just going to say, I, uh, thought they, I thought they were spring breeders. but So they're spring yeah, yeah, breeders. Yeah, they're yeah. Yeah. And then, they only uh, breed in spring. And then the females, they're ovoviviparous. Is that that's correct? Yeah. And then yep. and then they give birth. I'm assuming kind of in the late summer fall time frame. Yeah, depending on the summer weather. So I would say from mid to late August. And one year in my main study site, it was so cold that they didn't give birth until mid September. But uh, that's it. And and because of the females when they are pregnant or gravid, they don't move at all. So I've had, ra I radio track females for many, many, many years. And they stay exactly at the same spot. They don't move because the mm -hmm. most, the most dangerous snake as thing a snake can do independent of what snake is to move. Then you, a predator will see. You. So they don't move. And 
if, of course, then if prey is not common, they can't feed either because they can't hunt. But one year in Smigelhuk, there were so many bulls, so the females could actually eat when they were pregnant. A bull must have passed behind in front of them. And that year, two of them, I think, bred the next year. Otherwise, because of their not feeding, they are so skinny after giving birth. And the interesting thing is, I catch them in spring and weigh them. And then in the old days, I used to take the females, to, because they had radios inside them, I took them to uh, my, my lab in, in Lund. And they gave birth there so I could count, you know, how many babies, how many malformed, blah, blah, all of that much. And sex ratios and things like that. But I realized that if the female lost more than 50% of her body mass, so let's say the female weighed 200 grams when she came out in early spring, and she weighed less than 100, or so 80 grams after giving birth, she died within 24 hours. So quite a large proportion of females only reproduce once. But of course, there are exceptions. I had one in Smigelhuk, she lived for 22 years and reproduced 11 out of those. So it all uh -huh. it's dependent, but it's a, it's a big, big investment for a female adder to reproduce. It costs a lot of energy. And that's and will the same they typically, for Yeah, and so that's yep. what I was gonna ask. Will they typically go multiple years in between giving birth like rattles yeah, they, many in rattles southern sweden they, they do it every in southern sweden they do it every second year uh, okay. in northern sweden Excellent. it's probably every third every fourth year okay and then similar you know rattlesnakes as you know the females they go to they do the same type of thing they stay in at one site they may sounds like i mean they move a little more probably than the adder but they stay at one particular site and they're going there because they can raise their body temperatures and keep their body temperatures high kind of both day and night all summer as they finish you know developing uh the offspring and, and so are are the adders selecting specific sites in the same way say they're going to places where they can get heat throughout the night as well or is it kind of more of a random location they select no no they they, they are like your rattlers they they go to sites where so i have had many females that you know i know where they went when they were gravid year one and then i had a going again year three to the same site and they say, yeah, my main study site is just a big grassy meadow, basically, very small, not a fairly small grassy meadow. That's why I can catch them all. But uh, they are sort of bunkers from built during the Second World War and uh, along the coast there, because it's a, along the coastline. And there, there are rocks and stuff and that now have fallen apart. So they like, many of them like it there because it's sheltered from the wind. And as you say, the rocks warm up. If it's a sunny day, they warm up and probably keep the heat a bit during the night. And they they stay close to those in the bushes, close to those, or in the grass, close to those. So yes, they pick sites that are thermally probably optimal for keeping high body temperatures. Ah, okay. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that site. So this site you're talking about on the coast, the the you know with the World War II. You know the old bunkers and all that. This is the site that you you've been studying for over forty years, and the one that um, you know actually went to a relatively small 
population size. Um, I, I guess let's start with how did you discover that population? And then how did you discover the idea that, or not the idea, but the fact that this population was so uh, incredibly small? Well, the first thing was we would, I was told long before I was told my, we had a herb society here in Sweden. Uh, I would, you know, I'm at a pet keeper herb society and I was the chairman of, well, in, in one of them. And anyhow, and the bloke told me, oh, I seen Addis down in Smigadook. That's what he's called. So a mate of mine who is a keen rattlesnake keeper, uh, he, we would drove down there. We saw this grassy meadow and we said, ah, oh, ridiculous. Can't be Addis here. Absolutely ridiculous. It's not a, it's, it didn't look like anisite at all. We walked 50 meters and we saw two or three. And we thought, oh, my God, we were wrong. But then nothing happened. I, I, I didn't do anything because then I was still an undergrad and whatever. And, uh, and I was not interested in becoming, I was more, I would, I would have become a biochemist and immunologist because that's what, what I studied during my biology. But then, then I thought, oh, it was a bit boring doing uh, genetics and molecular biology all the time. So I also studied the column, but that's another story. Anyhow, so then in 1981, I went back because then I started my PhD. So I went down there because I had, in the meantime, been working on grass snakes on my spare time. And I published quite a few papers on grass snakes, but they were hard to study. You know, they you, you, you could catch most of them, but... They moved around and uh, it was like, you know, a snake where you couldn't do much. But the thing with Addis was, so there Rick had a big influence on my choice, Rick Shine, because in 1978, he published a paper which basically said that in species where males fight for females, they are nearly always bigger than the female. But I knew that male Addis fought for females and they are much, much smaller. So I thought, wow. That is something. And then Smigahut, if you have a normal adder habitat, they like thickets, bushes, rocks, blah, 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 you know, typical snake habitats. But there you can't watch them, see them all the time. They might go under a bush and mate, and you wouldn't know who's mating with whom. But Smigahut was excellent because it was just a grassy meadow. So they had no way to hide. They were in the grass, of course, but I could always find them. And then I knew it was completely isolated. So the nearest, it's about one and a half kilometers long and 20, 200 meters wide. And the nearest adder population is 50, oh, 40 k's north. North of this is just agricultural land. There are no reptiles there at all. So I knew they were completely isolated. And that I thought was good from when I, because I was interested in genetics. So then we, I started in 1981 and, um, Realized we could, yeah, we, it was easy to catch them. And so we did a normal thing. I caught and marked them. And, and uh, I wanted to do more with them than just this to find out how many there were. And of course, I got growth rates and things like that. But I realized I wanted to see who is mating with who because I've seen quite a few matings in the wild. So I made, I built my own radio transmitters. I didn't have any grants. So I built small radio transmitters. And the good thing with adders was that, or at least the females, you could force feed them the transmitter. It was, you know, about 15 mils long and 10 mils wide and covered with whatever. And then I forced them. 
and they didn't regurgitate. So it was a piece of cake. You just had a bunch of transmitter in your pocket. You caught a female, force-fed her with a transmitter, and let her go again. So you didn't have to do any surgery or anything, which is can be quite a lot, as you know. You have probably done it. And this Many. was a piece of cake. But then, of course, I could find every female. I want all the females that had radios. So then I could just walk around, and it's due to the small area. So, and all the snakes I caught, males and females, I also painted their number on their back. You know, so we had adder number 32, it had 32 on its back. So, and the females were, of course, on different radio frequencies. So I knew which female I was looking for. But they also had a number on their back. And then, you know, by looking at that, I rec- I've seen, I recorded nearly 200 combats. And uh, because, and I could see, and then the thing is that the copulation takes about 45 minutes. They're stuck together for 45 minutes. I know that in rattlesnakes, they're sometimes stuck for 24 hours. But here it's normally 45 minutes. And then I could, because once they were actually copulating, then I left her because then I could go. So I knew that female is now okay for 45 minutes. So I could just, so every 10 minutes, I checked all of my females in the area due to it was so small. So I knew which male that got there first. Quite often, so the matings I recorded, I classified them as three different types. Chance mating, where the male just come on, on the female and there were no other males around and the female mated. She needed about 40 minutes of courting to mate. But if there are no other males came, whoop, independent of the size of the male, he would mate. Then you had combat matings where two males of a similar size came to the female and they would start fighting. If the size difference between the two males was more than three or four centimeters now in length, they were about 45, 50 centimeters of snout bent length. The smaller male just left. They didn't fight. He knew he would lose, and they took off with an enormous speed. But if they were similar sized, then they could fight. Uh, most fights were only about four, five, ten minutes, but I have fights that lasted two days with two males. They were fighting 12 hours plus 12 hours. And that female during that time mated with sneaker males that kept outside of these two males. And uh, since they were just fighting, they they could mate. So you had combat mating, chance mating, where the male, there was just one male there, and sneakers. And then, of course, a sneaker could come in, and that was often a small one. So I'm assuming that a a female might might, uh, breed with multiple males in a season, so you have the potential for, like, multiple paternity. Is that true? She had made it on average with four different males. And the highest one I had was something like eight or nine. And, you know, but, but they made it with any, any male that could stay with her for 30 minutes. If two, these two stupid males I told you about, they were fighting, they gave up and they tried to mate with her, both of them at the same time. And that I've seen happening a few times. And the female would refuse because there were two males. So she wouldn't, you know, no, I'm not mating with you. You you, you have to sort yourself out. Hmm. So, and the thing is, of course, you get multiple paternity. So it depends. It, it's So if four males mate, depend that we can come to later, but it's a lot of to do with sperm choice and things like that, which we perhaps can talk about. 
but uh, it's basically so basic to make it simple if you have two males mating and they are similar size and they inject similar amount of sperm half of them will sire over half of the offspring well half of the offspring is from one and half is from the other that's a simplified a bit but that's it thank you for listening to snake talk If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. So you're out there studying all this reproductive behavior, and there comes a point where uh, I was reading in, in one of your papers that the population dropped incredibly low i want to say somewhere in the 20s i'm and correct me if i'm wrong but uh and then you start doing genetic work and you you realize that this isolated small population was experiencing uh some inbreeding effects and i was wondering if you could kind of describe you know those some of those effects you were seeing in the population now, the, the way I found out that they were inbred was that I told you, you know, I took all the females to Lund to give birth. And uh, 1984 was the first year I had radios in them. So I think it was about eight or nine females. And some of the broods had a lot of stillbirths and malformed offspring. And since they had been out in the wild, it was not me keeping them in the wrong temperature or anything like that. It was something happening. So let's say in 84, there was about 15% malformed. In 85, 20, and it just went up and up. And in 1991, I think it was 80% malformed. And the interesting thing is most of them, of course, malformed never survived. So the population, which in fact was when it was its higher in the old days, it was about 20 males and 20 females. So 10 females would reproduce. But it dropped. So every year it dropped because what happened was a male adder has a chance, has a 70, 30% risk of dying. That's the mortality rate. And on, that's the average for a female too. So 30% will die every year from predation. And of course, to keep the population at the same level, you need to have an input of babies. Give it up, but there was none coming. So the population just dropped, 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 dropped. And in 1991, I realized this population will be extinct in 1995. And I knew it was genetics because I had then run the genetics of them and they looked like a clone. I used immunogenes because they are very good to look at genetic diversity. And they looked like they were one egg twins, all of them. Was hard. There was one allele difference between all of them. It was nothing. And I had, of course, taken samples from other populations where I looked at where they were not inbred and they were good. So in 1992, I drove 100Ks north of Smigahook and caught 10 males there. And then I drove another 200Ks north and caught 10 males there. It was in early March and took them down to Smigahook. So I released 20 males. And then the population of males at the pop was, I think it was eight or nine left in Smigahook. And there were about four, four females or something, five perhaps, I've forgotten, but very few. 
and I released them. And I thought, you know, because I tried this, if it works. And these males settled in really well. They had no problems at all. And they mated with the females, of course. And when I took those females to the lab, there were no malformed offspring at all. Nothing. They were all healthy. I thought, my God, I'm onto something here. So that's how I came to know that the egg of the female can actually pick the sperm that it wants, that is most compatible, that would make the best baby. Because the males mate, all of the matings and copulations occur 14 days before the female ovulates. So she has a marble sperm in a reproductive tract. And when the follicles move down, the sperm is there mixed, and the egg could pick the best sperm. And that we have sent, since show, shown on, and my, one of my PhD students in Sweden, Mats Olsson, we showed it on Sandlis, it's the same thing. And there we could actually experimentally show how the female, how, how the egg does it. So that is then called cryptic female choice and of sperm. And that Rick and I published a paper on that in 92 in Nature. And it changed the way uh, we thought about evolution and sexual selection, because according to Darwin, that males should mate with as many females as possible to become, you know, more, have higher reproductive success. But a female, that's enough if she mates with one. And this paper completely negated that. It said it was the same for females as males. The more males a female mated with, the better her offspring. So it was exactly the same. And that changed the way we look upon bio sexual selection. It was a major breakthrough. Because now it's, of yeah. course, found in birds and mammals. Every vertebrae you look at, you find it. And humans, it, including humans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so where does that population stand today? So I know you still have been monitoring it over the years. Um, are you still augmenting it, or was it just that one? Uh, no, no. I, I, let the males, I let the males stay there. The males stay there. I caught them. I caught the. There were eight of the 20 that had survived until spring 96. And the interesting thing, they were from just one of the population. So the, the other one, 12 died, and of the two died of the other. So I, I, I let them go back up because then I knew there, there is so much genetic variability now in the population. And it just started skyrocketing going up because now all the babies survived, of course. But then in 2007 or something, uh, it's an awful story. Anyhow, this is a small area, and the, the local county gave a permit to build a house right in the middle of it. And they made, made a brick wall that cut off the site from east to west. So the others hibernated in the eastern part and moved to the western part to feed in summer. But they couldn't move there because of the wall. And this was illegal, but that's another story. And that completely smashed the population. And so none of the the majority of the adults hibernated east of the wall and a small minority west. So when I went down there in 2009, there were none east of the wall. They were all gone. And the people told me because the northern part, the, the, one of the boundaries is a, is a, it's a road, it's a quite a lot of traffic. And they said, yeah, we've seen lots of adults dead here. And I've never seen that before. 
And of course, it was because when they came to the brick wall, they wanted to move to their feeding sites, but they couldn't. So they started moving around, you know, where, where the heck shall I go? And the population just crashed again. And then I did a lot of fuss about this. It was a big thing. So the wall had to come down, parts of it, so they could move again. And uh, then we continued. And since then, you know, they come back. And, and now the record we had, I was 2017. I caught 71 males, you know. It's, uh, it was up to 71 males. It just went skyrocketing. And then, unfortunately, we can talk about that. The summer of 2018 in Sweden was the hottest and driest we ever had for 200 years. And that knocked down the population by 50% to 2019 because there was no food, no rodent spread. And the worst thing, adders always live in humid areas. Yeah? They lose a lot of evaporated water loss, it's called. So when they exhale and inhale, they lose water. They have to drink. There was no water. So when I came in 2019, that spring, they were emaciated and in awful state. But they have come back. So to, they are coming back again now. But uh, that summer was a big hit. I mean, it, it really, and the, on the island, my island population was the same. It went from, we caught 50, 50 a year before, and next time we went out, we found eight after the summer. Mm. So 2019, we found eight, I think. So they have died. Wow. And the same thing happened there. They died of, of the drought. Hmm. And I know that Gordon and some other people worked on Copperheads somewhere in, in the distribution. And they found also that droughts, they, I don't think they found this extreme mortality on Copperheads, but they found that female reproduction was highly reduced because of droughts yeah and it was of course exactly. probably similar here but here it was clean death you just die uh -huh. and i think i know it's a combination of no food they could survive one year without food but i think that on top of that having nothing to drink that was disastrous huh. so but they are coming back again and i'm not worried because they still they can drop to very low numbers now because they have super high genetics. There's not two snakes even close to being similar genetically. They are so completely different. So after this crash because of the house, they came back faster than ever. It just skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. It's also a paper I just published about that. So it's yeah. all well, that must, good. Yeah, that must be a good feeling. You're almost single-handedly responsible for that population surviving. So that's... Uh, Kudos to you. Yeah, yeah. So, then, you know, I think, uh, I think it's important, sorry, but it's important for many others that, you know, think of fragmentation of populations and, and gene flow being restricted. Similar things can happen in ma on many species because the genetics of any, it's not genetics to Alice, it's not different from genetics of lions or elephants or anything. It's the same. So small, isolated populations they might come to suffer from similar effects. Yeah. Well, Thomas, so we could talk about adders because they've always fascinated me for hours, but uh, we, we're coming up on time, and I do want to transition to a different part of the world, and I want to use your um, 
you know, your description of, of kind of this climate level impact that, you know, Im- impact your adders and, and have you bring us down to Australia, um, where you're currently living and you have another long-term, uh, study there, uh, where you've been working on snakes and there's been, uh, just some, uh, similarly kind of changing climate, uh, patterns that have really impacted uh, those snake populations. And I wonder if you could, if you kind of go through that, you know, the general idea of what's happening uh, down there. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the water python project you're talking about that Rick initiated in 1986. And he had been up there doing a few studies, but he was just up there a short time. In 89, I came there and then I really hit them. So, I soon found out that there were about two and a half thousand pythons in this small area. And I could catch on average night, I would catch about 30. And, uh, and then of course, I also wanted to find out how could there be so many pythons. And it turned out it was a prey they feed on. It's an indigenous rat called dusky rats. And it's on the, these snakes and the rats, they live on the floodplain. So it's a big, huge area, huge squares, many, many square kilometers of Yes, grassland that gets flooded during the wet season. And uh, the python's population was thriving. And, and Rick and I, we, all I found when we published it together, that rats going up and down had a slight effect on the python's numbers, but you know, not much. You know, they go from 2,500 down to 2,000, perhaps up to 3,000, and up and down. And then in 2007, we got the flood. It rained so much in 24 hours that it created an inland tsunami that came from the floodplain, not from the sea. The floodplain is like a Y-shaped thing, and it's about 60 k's by 10 k's, and it goes down to a narrow area in the river. And there it rained, and it filled up. So a one-meter-high wave came over the floodplain in just a few minutes and, of course, drowned all the rats. And they could handle water, but there was no, 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 they could swim. So that was not a problem, but there was nothing to feed on. It was all underwater. So the, the rats died of starvation. And the next year, the, I saw the pythons forget were skinny and bad, and they started dropping in numbers. But then a few years later, the rats saw sign of coming back. So I thought, okay, we'll see what happens. But then in 2011, the same thing happened. Bang. And the second time, that the pythons couldn't handle because then they had been out of food since 2006 for five years, virtually no food. And they were starving to death. First of all, all the big pythons died because they needed to eat a lot of rats just to keep them going. The smaller, and they, so they, they, be, they were really only small snakes there. And they swapped what they could eat, what they what was there. They ate a lot of death adders, they ate snakes, they ate lizards, they ate anything that was there. But of course, the prey numbers were so low, it didn't sustain them. And then to top it up, in 2018 came the worst flood. It was just devastating. And then the population, I was up there 2019 after that flood. And in six weeks, I caught 34 pythons. That was a one night catch before the flood in 2007. And of those 34 pythons I caught, 30 were so emaciated 
that two of them died when I put them into the snake bag to take them to weigh them. They were completely just a living skeleton. So out of those 30, only four would have a chance to survive. And now I'm heading up there again. And I have the friend because of COVID. I've not been able to go up there for two years. But the python, he, he catches about 30 pythons a year now. So they are, they've not come back yet. But the rats are back. They came back last year. Greg found quite a few. And according to my friends up there, there are still lots of rats. So it will be fun to come up and see. But it will take, it will take a long, long time for, for this python population to come back. And if these floods become this regular, because previous, previous to the 2007 flood was 1974 and in 1942, since 2007, we've had three. If now, let's say we get one in a few years time again, then the python population will never come back. It will, it will always, there will be pythons there, but in very, very low numbers. And the whole ecosystem have changed. Because these rats were the hamburgers for birds of prey, for the dingo, and many other animals, and they're gone. Wow, it's it's uh, yeah, fascinating to see kind of climate impacts impacting like uh, food webs uh, of animals and and predators uh, declining. Some of the work that you guys were doing. And that area is, is uh, some of what inspired my PhD work, looking at food webs and it wasn't a climate factor, but looking at how a invasive plant was changing a disturbance regime and then how it was impacting the prey and in turn impacting uh, rattlesnake species. And uh, I, I just think those kinds of ecological uh, connections are, are fascinating. So, well, uh, I would love to keep talking, but we've been going an hour and, um, I want to be mindful of, of your time. And, uh, but before I let you go, I want you, uh, let's just imagine that, that we're up in Sweden and, uh, we're catching adders and, you know, having a good old time. And we are, sitting down around a campfire at night and uh, maybe with a cold beverage or two and uh, and telling stories. And I ask you to tell me your best snake story. Well, the best snake story is from Africa, but I will give you one which is nearly as good from Smygehut. One day, when one of the years when I was radio tracking, I came down, the Swedish Defense Force was out there with some sea robots, missiles, you know, they big missiles in the middle of the meadow with lots of soldiers with submachine guns and blah, 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 all around them. And I came walking there and they said, oh, no, stop, stop, stop. This is military here. But I said, I have, my adders are here. They I have to shake them. And they said, ridiculous. So the, an officer came up, you know, and said to me, what is this? <laughs> what are you doing here? It's illegal. And I said, listen. So I gave him the earphone and then he could hear beep, beep, beep. I said, what's that? I said, that's a radio signal from an adder, and it's near your gun, near your messer. Oh, I said, okay. So, so we walked there. <laughs> and sure enough, she was lying there. They hadn't seen her. And all the soldiers, you know, with all their machine guns and everything, they just dropped <laughs> them and came to look. And if I had been a Russian spy, I could have blown up those missiles, easiest piece of cake. <laughs> Oh, that's a great story. And at least they were interested, though. They weren't. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Sounds no, like no. So then it was no problem. So 
they allowed me. I was there. I, it was this was early morning when I was radio tracking. I radio tracked from early when the sun came up until it got cold again. So I could pass, you know, and, and they, they kept wreck. I told them, check that female, you know, she's number whatever it was. And, and note down which male that come up because they have numbers on their back. And they did it perfectly. <laughs> That's great. Uh, employing them in your research. So, yeah. well, uh, Thomas, it's been really good to, to catch up with you and uh, to learn a little bit more about some of these places and snakes that I've been reading about in your publications over the years. Uh, so I appreciate that. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. No worries. And I just wanted to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild.